verse 1 is really the formal beginning of the book of of Isaiah. One of the most well-known sections of Isaiah, and it details Isaiah's call to ministry. In fact, everything that we look about that tonight is going to center on the ministry of, of Isaiah. And three elements are going to come out about his ministry as we work through these chapters. In chapter 6, we'll notice the commission of Isaiah's ministry. And then chapter, the end of chapter 6 through, through the middle of chapter 8, we'll notice the nature of Isaiah's ministry. And then the middle of chapter 8 to the middle of chapter 9, the message of Isaiah's ministry. The commission, the nature, and the message of Isaiah's ministry. I want to read chapter 6 in its entirety, and then we'll move on. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is, desolate, is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I said we're going to notice three elements of Isaiah's ministry. And I want to begin tonight with the commission to ministry or the commission of Isaiah's ministry. We have a little bit of a time note here in chapter 6, verse 1, and that is in the year that King Uzziah died. You remember from last time that King Uzziah was a very successful king. It was a time he led Israel, he led Judah, particularly the southern kingdom, in a time of great prosperity. If you want to read a little bit about King Uzziah, you can look at 2 Kings chapter 15 or 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It was a time of great prosperity, yet it was a time which found many people involving themselves in acts of sin. Uzziah, who was also known as Azariah, also found himself involved in sin. He did not respect the holiness of God. He did not respect the otherness of God, the transcendence of God, the greatness of God. And he disobediently entered the temple, attempting to offer incense, and as a result of this... He became unclean. 
His uncleanness was manifest in his leprosy. It only magnified the reality of his uncleanness. So the fact that what we read here is, you know, Isaiah seeing God as holy and, 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 and Isaiah being cleansed of uncleanness simply reflects the, the pattern or the reality of those days in Judah. Isaiah is in the temple, and even though it was the year that Uzziah died, the vision is clear. Even though the Uzziah would die, uh, the vision is clear. God is on his throne, and God is the one who is giving this commission. God is the one who is calling the prophet to ministry. And you notice here how this is deeply rooted in God. There can be no mistake, it comes from God. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now John tells us in John chapter 12 verse 41 that it was actually the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that Isaiah saw. And four things are very clear as Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord. First of all, it's clear is, is the Lord's sovereignty. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. The Lord seated on the throne. This is a, a, an idea of kingly sovereignty. One who is in control over all things. Not one who is in despair. Not one who is wringing his hands. Not one who, who wonders what's going to happen next. But, but we see this, this, this commission rooted in the sovereignty of God. He's seated on the throne. But not only is it, is it viewing his sovereignty, it's viewing his supremacy. He says he was high and lifted up. This high and exalted position demonstrates the position of God before the nation. Not to mention demonstrates the position of God before his prophet. He is in a position of supremacy. He is sovereign and he is supreme. But you'll notice also, not only does it speak of his sovereignty and his supremacy, not only is this call rooted in sovereignty and rooted in supremacy. It's also rooted in majesty. The Bible says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is speaking of his, of his majesty, his, his, his glory, his royalty, this long train that filled the temple, just majestic glory. It's, it's as if to say, nobody, nobody can, can doubt what this this, this one who is seated on the throne would say. Nobody can take their eyes off the one who is, it's, it's kind of like when a bride comes down the aisle and, and her train fills the aisle. You know, everybody is just, uh, is just, their eyes are glued to the bride. That's where Isaiah's eyes are glued right now. This call is rooted in God's sovereignty and God's supremacy and God's majesty or royalty, but it is also rooted in his exclusivity. Because even though we have this throne and the Lord sitting on the throne, there is particular attention giving, given to those who are around the throne. In this case, they are angelic beings, the seraph, which simply means the, the burning ones. Maybe suggestive of their message, maybe suggestive of their, uh, their zeal for the Lord, being consumed with the Lord. They, 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 they are literally the burning ones. They're constantly attending one thing. And that is the proclamation of the holiness of the Lord. The declaration of the absolute and complete holiness of God who is seated on the throne. The fact that he is not just holy, not holy, holy, 
but holy, 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 holy to the nth degree, transcendent, above all, different, other, I prefer the word exclusive. And so this call that Isaiah is going to to find here, this call that Isaiah is going to receive is rooted in the sovereignty of God and rooted in the supremacy of God and rooted in the majesty or royalty of God and rooted in the exclusivity of God. Now you'll see how Isaiah responds. Isaiah responds. There, There are no high fives here. There's no splashing around with Jesus in the the crystal sea, if you read those books, you know, 23 minutes in heaven or heaven is for real or whatever. It's just all a bunch of utter nonsense. There is only utter brokenness for seeing the glory of God in his absolute holiness. Isaiah responds in humble confession the same way that Ezekiel responded in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, the, the same way that Job responded uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 19, the same way that Job responded, the same way that Peter responded in Luke chapter 5, and the same way that John responded in Revelation chapter 1. Utter brokenness, utter uh, humility. The Bible says here in verse 5, woe is me for I am lost. Now the woes that were included in the preface section back in chapter 5 Verses 8 through 23, a series of woes there. Now the woes, which by the way, the word woe is like a, it's like it's something that would happen in, in a funeral. It, it expressed great uh, despair, great grief, great sorrow, great sadness. Woe, you would, you would speak like that at a funeral. And, and Isaiah has seen something that perhaps he's never seen before, or certainly seen in a way that he's never seen before. What is that? His own lostness. His own uncleanness. He says, he says I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips. Uh, that word lost is the word sometimes translated, I'm undone. I'm beside myself, like a like a roll or a spool of fishing wire when it comes uh, 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 undone. There's no putting it back together. That's how Isaiah saw himself. Broken. Humbled. His ministry was a ministry that was going to pronounce judgment. We saw that in the preface. But you know, I always think that the preacher of judgment ought to realize That he's in the same position as those to whom he preaches. Like one man said, just a preacher is just one starving blind beggar trying to show other starving blind beggars where to find bread. And Isaiah has has pronounced the message of woe. We've seen that in the the preface. Upon uh, Judah, upon Jerusalem, upon the nations. But now it comes very personally and he realizes that it's not just a message that's out there, but it's a message that is directed at his heart because he sees his own sin. Having seen the exclusivity of Almighty God, having seen the purity and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is broken 
and needs to be cleansed. And he is cleansed there, you see, in verse 6, by the burning coals from the altar, probably the altar of burnt offering, uh, ever-burning offering in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 12, suggests the purifying fire of cleansing away the guilt of sin. This commission is rooted in God and is responded to with humility. But, but notice what the responsibility is of this commission. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Of course, you note the Trinitarian emphasis there. And I said, Here I am, send me. Now listen, it wasn't that the Lord didn't know who was going to be sent. Of course He knew who was going to be sent. But He's giving opportunity to Isaiah to respond. Having been cleansed, having his sin atoned for, now God, like the gracious king he is, gives opportunity for his servant, the prophet, to respond positively to this commission. And that's exactly what he does. Here am I. Not here I am as if, it, you know, I'm in, this is the position, but here am I. I I'm, I'm in a position to serve you I'll do whatever you ask. Now remember, the root of that commission, all of that, that glory that has been seen is going, to, is going to be something that's going to help Isaiah through his ministry. So we move from the commission to ministry to the nature of ministry. It was a difficult ministry. What, what, what does his ministry involve? Go and say to this people, now you can imagine that Isaiah would be eager to speak for God to the people, having experienced what he's just experienced, having seen the glory that he has just seen, and experienced the grace that he has just experienced. Of course he'd want to go and speak to this people. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't long for such a cleansing as this? Who wouldn't long for the message of God, of God's holiness? But that's not going to be the nature of his ministry. What's the nature of his ministry? Go and say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. What a difficult thing that must have been for Isaiah to hear. Go and preach to this people so that they would not hear. Isaiah, your ministry is going to be one in which I am going to pronounce my judgment upon these people. The judgment that he's speaking of here very clearly is the, Bab the coming Babylonian invasion. We'll speak of that in a couple of, of weeks. But what's the nature of his ministry? The nature is to be faithful. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing. Make them... them uh, make the heart of this people dull. In other words, it, it, it's to be faithful in the sense that just do what I tell you to do. Not only is it to be faithful, but it's to be persistent. He says in verse 11, how long? How long do I do this? Until, essentially, he says, until I tell you to stop. Do it until all the way through, until the cities lie without inhabited until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, do it until the Lord removes this people. 
But do you notice this, this ministry not only is to be faithful, not only to be persistent, but it's to be hopeful. I mean, having said all that he has said and brought this, this reality, uh, the Lord removing the people far away, forsaking places that are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felt. The holy seed is its stump. There is a note of hopefulness in the ministry of Isaiah. And you know it. You've read it. Isaiah 53, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You've, you've, you've experienced some of the hope of Isaiah. That's the nature of his ministry. It was to be a faithful ministry, a persistent ministry, a hopeful ministry, and a bold ministry. Now we come to chapter 7. And this speaks a little bit of the boldness of of this ministry, chronologically speaking, we're skipping over the reign of Jotham and going right to the events that took place during the reign of Ahaz. And again, if you want to read a little bit about Ahaz, you can see that in 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, not, not Ahab, but Ahaz, 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. The year is 735 B.C. in the days of Ahaz. Ahaz was a ruler in Judah. He was 21 years old when he began to reign. The days of relative prosperity under under King Uzziah were gone. Uzziah was dead. And now Ahaz was reigning. Ahaz, according to 2 Kings 16, was an idol worshiper, and he actually led Judah to do the same thing. He made political treaties with Assyria, thinking that they would provide protection against the approaching armies of Syria and northern, in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is a time of great political upheaval, great spiritual instability in Judah, no real spiritual life to be spoken of, either in the northern or the southern, uh, the southern kingdom. Ahaz, to be blunt, was wicked. He was a wicked, idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing pagan, and the people were going in the same direction. And the prophet Isaiah is commissioned to go to Ahaz. Now there has to be a bit of grit, sort of like the the grit of Elijah to be able to go to Ahab. There has to be some grit, some boldness in Isaiah to be able to go to Ahaz. And the prophet Isaiah is commissioned here in chapter 7 to go to those people who would not understand, even though they would hear the word of God through him. He spoke of the coming day of the wrath of the Lord when the proud would be humbled. His message of impending doom made it all the way to the palace of Ahaz. Now the Bible says it was at the time, that time, that Rezin, who was the king of Syria, and Remaliah, who was the king of, uh, of Israel, came to make war against Jerusalem. And when Ahaz found this out, the Bible says, Isaiah 7-2, look at it here. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were shaking in their boots. But God, 
in his mercy, sent Isaiah the prophet to the troubled king. And what was his message? Look at verse 4. And say to him, verse 4, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. God sent a promise to Isaiah that their threats would actually come nothing. But Ahaz has a problem. His problem is what we might call a faith problem. You see, he refused to believe. And God brought that to his attention. He says in verse 9 these words, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And God then invited Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah to seek a sign, anything. Seek any sign and God will grant it. But Ahaz was so settled in his prideful unbelief that he would not trust God. Rather, he would trust in his pact with Assyria. But guess what? That brought God's judgment. And it would actually be Assyria that would be that judgment. Now you can imagine that such a message was not well received. But here's Isaiah boldly delivering it. You can imagine that Isaiah would be the subject of scorn and threats from the people. But God reminds his servant. He reminds his servant that he is to be the object of his fear. Look down at verse um, Uh, Go over to chapter 8 for a moment. Chapter 8, verse 11. The Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me and warned me to not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. See how that calls back what just happened in the commission In chapter 6, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. God reminds his servant that he, God, is the one who is to be feared. Let him be your fear. And then in chapter 8, verses 17 through 18, is Isaiah's response. What does he say? I'll wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel For the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. His his response is he'll wait on the Lord. He's going to hope in the Lord. He is dedicated to the Lord. Now another caution comes from God in verse 19. You see apparently the people were actually encouraging Isaiah. They were actually begging him to consult mediums and wizards. They were actually begging him to consult mediums and wizards. Why? Because they didn't like the word of God. They would have rather heard from spiritualists. They would have rather heard from the tarot card reader. They would have rather heard from that, you know, that little genie that you put a quarter in at the, at the, at the, uh, the, the arcade who tells you. They'd rather heard from a magic eight ball. If anybody remembers what those were. They'd have rather heard from those things instead of hearing from God. And that really is the sign of a degradation in society. 
when they so despise God that instead of listening to him, they seek the incantations and murmurings of mediums and wizards. But he says in verse 19 of chapter 8, should not a people inquire of their God? And notice the instruction that God gives. Go to the law. Go to the law. That's what he says. Verse 19, when you say inquire of the mediums, the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they, not inquire, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Go to the word, go to the teaching, go to the testimony. But if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They have no light. Listen, the reason that people reject the word of God is because they have nothing to do with God. And you know what? Those are miserable people, aren't they? Can I just say that wherever the society at large turns away from the word of God, you will find a miserable society. You'll find people who are frustrated, desperate, angry. You'll find people who curse God. They'll curse their king. They look all around and all they will see is trouble. All they will see is anguish and darkness and gloom. In fact, look at verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged. They're hangry and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. There's only darkness. There's only anguish. There's only gloom. There's only despair. This is a picture of hopelessness. But what we see in Isaiah, the nature of his ministry, to get back to this, is the boldness of his ministry. That's what happens to people who digress from God's word, who seek the counsel of darkness. And at the end of chapter 8, it's gloom, despair, and agony on me. It is gloom-filled darkness, as dark as it possibly could be, emotional distress, Physical, physical agony among the people. That's the nature of this commission. To be faithful, to be, to be persistent, to be hopeful. There's that little, clown, that, that little streak of hope there, but to be bold. In the midst of that, midst of, at the end of chapter 8, you're like, I don't, I don't even want to go on. I mean... This is terrible. Thankfully, we have some of the most well-known verses in the book of Isaiah coming up in chapter 9. Because that leads us to the message of Isaiah's ministry. In chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 7 of chapter 9, let's read that. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts would do this. The message of Isaiah's ministry is a message of hope, amazingly enough. With all this gloom, with all this despair, chapter 9 seems almost out of place. He begins in verses 1 and 2 by giving this tremendous promise of hope. This despair that Isaiah 8 closes with needs not be an eternal despair. Just when darkness would seem to be the darkest, just when the agony would seem to be the most intense, there would be hope for people. Their ruler was a failed ruler, a faithless ruler. He drove, Ahaz drove the country into the ground, as it were. His pride as the, uh, was the downfall of a nation. But the prophet sees light at the end of the tunnel. And he looks to the northern part of, of the land of Israel, the place where the Assyrians first attacked, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, often, often considered to be oppressed and dirty lands, and says, they'll see the light. The Holy Spirit through Matthew tells us that this is referring, the light is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ leaving Nazareth and going to live in Capernaum, in Galilee of the north. Their light is coming. And then he, he goes on to describe this this hope with, with a couple of pictures in verse 3, the picture of a multiplied nation. In the end of verse 3, the picture of harvest. And, and verse 4, the, the picture of a broken yoke. And, and, and chapter uh, verse 5, the picture of, of boots of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and garments rolled in blood, burned as fuel. No more war. Just all of these pictures, these glorious pictures of hope leads us into a person. Why? Why this hope? Because to us a child is born. To us a son is given. How is this hope and extreme joy possible? Because a child is born, that's human parentage, a son is given, that's divine bestowment. This is the source of hope for the people. This is the one for whom Isaiah longed. He is the heir to the throne of David. And, and there is so much hope there's so much hope because of his capacity. <clears throat> he says, the government will be upon his shoulders. The burden on the shoulders of the people is lifted when he appears whose broad shoulders the government of the world rests. His capacity, his character, his capacity to take on himself the government of the world is not something which he received, for which he received training but it is an inherent capacity built in with his character. What is his character? His character is, is to be perfect in wisdom. He's a, might, a wonderful counselor. He's miraculously wise. And then he's powerful in his ability. He's the mighty God, the strong, brave God, deity come from heaven to earth. He, it's seen in his relationship. He is the everlasting father. 
This is used to describe the Messiah's relationship to time. Not his relationship to the other members of the Trinity. He is said to be everlasting. Just as God the Father is called the Ancient of Days, so this one is called the Everlasting. And because of the character of peace, the ruler, he's the captain of of peace, the ruler of shalom, the, the ruler of tranquility, the exact opposite of chaos. All you've known, Isaiah can say, is chaos and despair and gloom. But here comes one of perfect peace. And, and think of his, not only of his capacity and of his character, but think of his competence. The increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The prosperity and the peace of his government, he says there'll never be an end. Why? Because he never gives a wrong judgment. He will rule in blameless justice. And how's that going to happen? It's going to happen that the only explanation for this is that it is something that God has done. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the commander of the heavenly armor, armies will do this. Now, I want to know how Isaiah could deliver such a message as this. Having been commissioned and having, we, we see the, the commission to ministry, the nature of ministry and the message of his ministry. How could he deliver a message of hope like this? When, when he's told, go and you're going to say this and they're going to keep disbelieving. And then he has to go to Ahaz and he says, sees Ahaz and all of his wickedness and all of his utter rebellion. How can he bring a message of hope? Maybe I'll say it this way. How can we take a message of hope, the message of the gospel to the world with any confidence? How could he have such hope? Because in chapter 6, he saw a holy God. And that holy God, that vision of a holy God exposed his absolute depravity. His absolute unworthiness. His great need. And in that moment, Isaiah understood something. That if God could do that for him, what? He could do it for anyone. And that's what allows us to take a message of hope to the world. Because we know the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. We know our unworthiness. We know we've done nothing but deserve judgment, but deserve woe. And instead of woe, we've been given grace, and not just a little bit of grace, but heaps of of grace such that overcomes and is always greater than our sin. How could Isaiah deliver a message of hope? He could deliver a message of hope because it was delivered to him. 
And this is going to keep Isaiah going through some pretty difficult days. Some pretty hard days. You're not going to believe some of the things that he has to, to go through. But by God's grace, God keeps bringing in these visions of hope. This picture of the one who is to come. The, the child in, in chapter 9 is the suffering servant in chapter 53. You see, that's how Isaiah had hope. Let's pray.